Okay. Let me just do what I've been doing up until this point, and I'll just ask a couple of I'll ask a question and read a verse just to kind of get our minds tracking with kind of the thesis statement of our time together. Our task in this series is to clarify the doctrine of vocation, or what we call calling. Vocation is just the Latinate uh, version of the word calling is where we get the word calling. And in order that we may develop a more God-centered view, a less man-centered view of our faith, ourselves, our responsibilities and duties in the world. I said this last week as well. Keep this verse in mind and keep this uh, hopefully very humble, suggested question and answer that I've written in mind as well. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so we think about callings. We think about common grace and special grace. Keep in mind that it's, it, it is going to be offensive sometimes to our flesh. But Romans eleven thirty six says all things are through him. They're all from him, through him, and everything's about him. And so this helps us understand why the doctrine of vocation has often interfaced significantly, as I've said, with that sola, soli deo gloria. My question and answer is how does God glorify himself? And my suggested answer is that God glorifies himself by accomplishing his purposes, not ours, his purposes in his works, two kinds of works, common grace and special grace. And so, um, to give you a map of where we are, uh, last week we talked about the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, kind of introduced that distinction to you. This week we're going to further make those distinctions, kind of of the opinion that the more uh, you burrow down into some pre- preliminary issues, oftentimes when you're talking about theology, by the time you get to the practical questions, those things kind of pop those light bulbs hopefully start to turn on. Uh, When we're done making these distinctions between uh, the Great Commandment or the Ten Commandments and the Great Commission, I want to later look at the the sola, soli deo gloria, more closely. Consider it in a very God-centered way. Maybe even scan the scriptures, do a biblical theology, show how God is always been in the business of glorifying himself and show how Soli Deo Gloria is good news and not really law. Then we'll consider how the, the next week we'll consider the providence of God Lord willing and then the next week we'll consider good works in the Christian life Lord willing. This kind of feels tacked on. I apologize but I want to show you that the things that I'm saying comport with the history of the Reformed tradition. So I want to do a little bit of historical analysis. Look at the Reformers and then look at the Puritans, the post-Reformers. There are a lot of similarities there. Some differences, a lot of similarities, but show you that by and large what I'm saying is also faithful to what we believe to be a faithful Christian tradition, the Reformed faith. Um, <clears throat> just a couple of things about last week. Uh, fairly simple. We'll talk about this a little bit more actually when we talk about the law. 
the great commandment applies to all men. Just kind of explained how there's it doesn't apply to all men differently. It applies to all men in the same way, and that all men, church officers and lay people, all be judged by the Ten Commandments on the last day, and it, and it's breaching of the Ten Commandments that Jesus pays for, and uh, people go to hell for breaching the Ten Commandments. That's why they're condemned. Um. We spent a lot of time talking about the Great Commission after that. I was disappointed in myself for how uh, unclearly I said some things. Let me say a couple of things just to clarify. I'll move quickly past this. Um, we talked about how the Great Commission applies to the church. It's not moral law. It's not the Great Commandment per se. Kind of touched about touched on how there are some dangers in confusing or mixing together the Great Commandment the Great Commission. There are differences. Um, and it's even helpful to see the Great Commission as annexed to or staple to the Great Commandment. Um, but this is a specific mandate given to the church. Not all men, but to the church, the Great Commission, to preach the gospel to all nations. Um, some of the some of the things that we we had spoken about, um, we we touched on some specifics about the Great Commission and how it applies to to the church. Yes, and then I was critical, and still am critical of how we only read it in an individualistic way. We don't read it in an institutional way, um, which I think it's both. And really, my aim was just to. And it is just to say, don't miss the institutional aspect of the church. Let me say a couple of things that I think will just help kind of just land that. Um, if, if no one had any questions or issues with what I had said, I apologize. But uh, for anyone who just had a couple of question marks, let me just show you at least my view. I can't prove this part. I've got to move on. But I failed to communicate that, my, in my view, missionaries are pastors. So... The, so when, when Jesus gives the Great Commission and it applies to them directly as missionaries, then when we start to talk about even, um, you know, are all, so if it applies, if the Great Commission applies to all Christians, and then all of them are missionaries. And they're, in this sense, that's true. Because all people have been sent to proclaim the gospel. And yet, there is a technical vocational sense in which it's not true for all Christians. And I think that pops... We recognize that not all Christians are pastors. Not all Christians are church planting pastors. All Christians have been gifted with the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. But some have been specifically set aside as church officers to serve the institution of the church. So there's, a, there's an individual application, but there's an institutional application as well. And this is further evidenced by the fact that the verb participle, we talked about there's like there's four or five verb participles in Matthew 28. The main one tried to prove is make disciples. And then the subordinate one is go or as you are going. There's debate about, you know, does it mean go or as you are going? And I vacillate. It depends on what I ate for breakfast that day. Um, but... I, to prove that I think that the verb participle make disciples, which is the main content of that verse, applies first to church officers, and there's a direct application to the church institutionally 
and then an indirect application to the church organically or more individualistically to Christians. To prove that, consider not all are called to teach, and that Jesus says teaching them. Well, you know, all Christians teach, but not all are called to baptize, right? And we would say as Reformed people that church officers are primarily often, most of the time, they're the ones that baptize. I want that to, I just wanted to say it in that order so that you understand why I'm saying I do think there's a direct application of Matthew 28 to the church institutionally. Um, anyway, that those are the clarifications. I basically said all those things, but, um, you know, if you had any concerns, you got hung up on a couple of things I said, you probably don't want to do the time to connect those dots. I just want to connect them for you. The great commandment applies to all men without distinction. Great Commission applies to the church specifically and in different ways. And we'll continue to talk about this, but keep in mind that there's great Christian liberty when it comes to both mandates. Okay? Both, both of these mandates, the Great Commandment and Great Commission, are transcultural, transpolitical. They transcend. I don't like the word trans anymore. <laughs> it's kind of a. But, but they transcend. Uh, the contexts in which we live um, and they are black and white things however again when we talk about the church as an institution we can be kind of dogmatic about how a pastor ought to be going about the business of making disciples but how do you apply a disciple making model to every individual Christian you know, I could give you an exhaustive disciple-making model and then say that if you don't follow this, you're sinning. But I'm kind of just going off of principles. And we can apply the Great Commission as individuals in different ways with following our temperaments, our context, our skills, our gifts. Same thing with the Great Commandment, I would say, that loving and serving our neighbor, we might come to different conclusions on what it looks like to obey the second table of the law and our vocation. So we just need to keep in mind um, those those things. Any questions on that? Just kind of wanted to type any loose ends at all. Appreciate you listening to that uh, ad nauseum a little bit more. I'm going to cl further clarify the two distinctions because I'm not really feeling well. We started a little bit late. I'm happy to say we don't have a lot, a lot of content. We do have some scriptures. To, uh, quite a few scriptures to look at so we can stretch it out um, by having some conversation if you guys would like to. Um, this, so this morning we're not going to finish making a distinction between the Great Commandment and Great Commission. We're going to finish that next week. This week we're just going to fo focus on two words and next week we will consider the two kingdoms. Um, I'd planned on doing this but I thought I'd be able to finish it in one week. But um, not a whole, whole lot here. Two words. Anybody guess what it is? I think I said it already in passing. If you know me, if you just had to guess. What? The law and the gospel. So we're going to do that. We're going to think about the law and the gospel as it applies to Christian calling. Let's uh, get this out of the way. Go to Romans chapter 2. The things that I know that we've considered in depth as a church already, I'll try to move past very quickly. I just want to clarify 
you do this as a pastor, you clarify something and then you move on to another aspect of divinity. But I've tried to say over and over, theology is a web, or it should be seen as a web, with Christ at the center. And so when you go to one aspect of doctrine, you're going to find yourself referring to something you had already touched on, right? So we're talking about Christian calling, but we need to go back to talking about the moral law, even though we've already discussed it. I just want you to see how they're connected, okay? So very quickly, Paul is answering the question, how can Jews and Gentiles be judged by the same standard? How is that fair? Gentiles don't have the Ten Commandments. Well, it's because the Ten Commandments, I tried to show in a very long lecture about a year ago, Ten Commandments have been written on the consciences of Gentiles. That's how they can be held to the same standard as the Jews. So he says... Um, in verses uh, starting in verse 13 of chapter 2 it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the codification of the Ten Commandments they show that the law the work the, the demands this, the the main ideas, the main demands, the work of the law, not the letter, but the work of it, is written on their hearts while their consciences bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That's natural law. There's no covenant there, per se. There's, it's just a fact that human beings have been created and the law of God, the character of God, the, what is right and wrong, just stamped on their consciences. It's on their hearts. They just know what's right and what's wrong. Um, I just wanted to say that's natural law. I mean, that's that's just the law as a standard. Any questions on that? We'll, I want to show you the law as a covenant of works. Um, <clears throat> since we're already here, uh, I'm going to skip a point and go back to the previous one in just a moment. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. I want to show you that though the law is a standard, it's also a covenant. It's it's uh, God makes a covenant based upon whether or not one keep one keeps the law. So He staples to the law threats and promises. The threat is clear: eat of the tree, you'll die. But is there a promise? Um, Look at verse 10 with me in Romans chapter 7. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And and um, you could do a study of the law in Romans and I think you'd come away seeing that that's, that's the Ten Commandments with, with, with the promise of life stapled to it. Paul just said it. That's what it says as we say here. But uh, just to show you that it's covenantal, look at verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Her married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she, die, if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ 
so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We can't escape having been created um, in the image of God with Adam as our representative. We can't not escape the fact that we have a covenantal relationship with the law. We're born into that covenantal relationship. And we're, why would I use the word covenantal based on these verses? Marriage is a covenant. And he says, you're married to the law. And why does your relationship to the law end as it regards eternal life, like I'm obeying for eternal life? Because you've died to the law and become married to Christ, and now you're an in-law to the law. You relate to the law through Christ, who's now your husband. You're not married to the law directly. Um, so you deal with the in-law through your spouse, and all the married people say amen. So... The, the law as a covenant did not just promise life. It also, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it promised life. It did not just threaten death. And death, sorry. And upon the breaching of it is eternal death. Okay, it's law as a covenant of work. So it's not just a standard. It is that. But God um, covenants with Adam and all of us in Him. Okay. Any questions on that? We may have brief, briefly touched on Romans 7 in the past in Sunday school. Turn me to Romans 5. Again, just connecting some dots. You'll see hopefully why this is so important, why I would go here ad nauseum. The first Adam brought death and condemned everyone. I'm not reading anything, the scriptures right now. I'm just. The first Adam brought death and condemned everyone in the covenant he represented. He failed to bring mankind into glorification which was man's destiny that was man's destiny was to be glorified and to enjoy fellowship with God not to wander aimlessly in this unstable constant state forever constantly wondering we're going to live or die we could die at any moment now there was a probationary period we would say and um so man failed to enter into that state. Um, actually, turn over to Romans chapter 3. I say this all the time, but I, I really believe this, and I think it's important to say it over and over. Hopefully it doesn't bother you, but you just see this is important. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I disagree with Piper. It's not like you had the glory of God in a pocket, like you owned it like a treasure, and you just traded the glory of God, and now you traded it for the glory of man, and you just love the glory of man now. I think the glory of God is, a, is referring to a state of existence. We failed to enter into that state because we sinned. Now look with me at chapter 5. Not, not doing a whole lot of proving, say, just saying things I've said um, so I can get to where I want to go. This is some of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans 5, 18 through 19, because they're so useful. Put 18 in, on one, uh, as one lens of the glasses you want to wear when you read the Bible, and then per, put verse 19 as the other lens you want to read as you're reading the Bible. You want glasses. You want interpretive lenses 
to understand the Bible. And you need verses 18 and 19 of Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One by one's I'm sorry, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And these verses I think clearly teach that there's disobedience as a ground for being made or counted a sinner counted guilty that's what it means to be related to the first representative there's a second representative and his obedience is the ground upon which one is made not a sinner made righteous related to Adam dead in the covenant of works born into this world to pray. are you a Calvinist? This, this is consistent Calvinism Born into this world guilty based upon Adam's imputed guilt. His disobedience is the ground upon which you stand. But when you become related to Christ, you united to Christ, and he's your representative, and you now stand on his perfect righteousness. If you're an Adam, you're declared guilty on the basis of Adam's guilt. But if you're united to Christ, you're declared perfectly right because you're standing on the ground of his perfect obedience and righteousness. If you have a problem with one, you have a problem with the other. Right. Yeah. Yep. yep. So because we were found guilty in Adam, declared guilty, declared not right, we fail to enter into the world to come about which we're about to talk about. Any questions about the law as a covenant of works? not believe in the son the wrath of God remains you're born into this world under the wrath of God already condemned because of Adam yeah, and your sin nature Ephesians 2 verse believe it's verse 3 is children of wrath mm-hmm. and when you really look at the Greek there I mean NIV does the object of wrath children is very intentional in it. yeah. like to show your natural condition even as children you know, like, yeah. yeah. So the <clears throat> the individual sins you commit is there greater wrath for those individual sins? I mean, there are verses that talk about like, for your sin you will receive. And yeah. So there is like something that our individual sins receive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So in the same way that like our individual righteous acts will be given crowns in heaven, our individual sins give greater condemnation in heaven. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it, it'd we're be talking worth about enamoring Christ. We're talking about union mm-hmm. and position, like general relation through that federal head. Yes, but then there's our actual deeds flowing from our union. Yep, and you can be either one. You talk about like union with Christ and righteous. Or we, so there's always standing and state. Where I was looking for those two things. Cross was that. Anything else? So that's the the law, first laws of standard, then laws of covenant of works. Um, then there's the gospel as a covenant, or the gospel of the covenant of grace, the good news of the covenant of grace. R- Romans 5 that we just read shows us that the second Adam has absolutely would you say it's absolute he's absolutely completed the demands of the laws of covenant works whatever it was that Adam was supposed to do which we're just about to look at oh I forgot to do that let's do that let's do that now whatever it was that Adam was supposed to do Christ has done it there's nothing left for you to do He's the representative. Let's look at what Adam was supposed to do. I skipped it. Uh, Genesis 1. It's like, the, it's like some of the meat and potatoes of the study. I almost skipped it. Um, just by the by, I'm really not that smart at all. I'm like most of this stuff is ripped off of other people. Um, I'm leaning heavily upon the outline of Michael Horton and uh, David Van Drunen. Okay. Um, according to Van Drunen, don't you just love names of, that are like that? Van Drunen. That's a cool name. I wish I had that name. He, he thinks that Genesis chapter 1 which we're about to read explains the, the what we call the cultural mandate. This is very hotly debated in theology. Very hotly debated. I tweeted something today and I got pushed back by a Calvinist brother. The cultural mandate is in uh, Genesis chapter 1. Van Druden thinks that that's one side of the covenant of works. And, and so that's to take dominion over the world. And then in uh, chapter 2, the other side of that, one of the other things that I'm supposed to do is to guard the garden. Okay? Guard the garden, guard the temple, and expand its dominion all over the world. That's the covenant works. Uh, I have some questions about that. I'm just going to frame how he does it. He's way, I mean, he is literally a licensed lawyer and a licensed minister of the gospel and a scholar. Produced, I mean, this guy's brilliant. So he's smarter than me. I'm going to use his stuff. I haven't completely landed on it, but it's compelling, and I find it very interesting. But I do not believe in stealing, so I have to give credit to him. So Genesis 1, chapter, uh, verse 26, Then God said, let, man, uh, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion. 
You hear that on social media ever? Take dominion. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that's the, that's the cultural mandate. It's true and it exists. The cultural mandate exists. The question is, let's, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's read verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. To keep literally means to guard. Same word used to describe the priest in the Old Testament. I think it's Numbers 13. Uh, that the priests and Levites were to shamar, to keep any unclean thing from out of the temple. That word is used here to describe Adam. He's a priest. Adam is a priest over God's temple. So, according to Vandrunen, you know, I certainly would come down hard and say, verse 15, that's Adam's task. And Vandrunen would say, and also the cultural mandate. Um, so the question is, does the when Christ redeems us, um, is part of our redemption God enabling us to basically go back to square one and start off again as little atoms cultivating the earth and taking dominion? There are a lot of people that take that view. Um, and... Um, You know, in Genesis, when God God creates and then God rests and then God tells Adam get to work, I, I lean toward Van Drunen's side here. I kind of I can see how God's command to Adam to take dominion and to get to work expand. I mean, that's part of what it means to be an image bearer to reflect His glory by exercising God's rule on God's behalf as He sits in the heavens and rests as King. Adam is his image bearer, his his vice regent going out and, and spreading the dominion of God over all the earth. God's work is finished. Adam's work has begun. I do lean toward this idea of Adam's uh, task of taking dominion being part of the covenant of works. Um, so then the question is, when, when, when Christ is the second Adam redeems us, does he get us back to this place of working? like Adam did in the garden to take over the world in that sense where Christ has finished the work but now like Adam in the garden God has rested Adam is working Do are we the ones that are working okay and I want to frame it like that to kind of show why that's I think it's problematic to, to say that but there are a lot of Calvinistic people who would say your job redemption when you're redeemed, your job is to take dominion over the earth, like Adam. The cultural mandate is restored unto you. Um, and I would say that when, well, let's look at the promise after they sin. You know the story after they sin, but let's just look again. Verse 15 of Genesis 3, I, God says to the serpent, first time the gospel has ever been published in the history of mankind. Grace like this has not been published as revelation to mankind before like this. First words out of his mouth. I will put enmity, hostility between you, Satan, 
and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Singular. He, her offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this is a promise. Wouldn't you say that this is a promise of the second Adam? This is a promise that God will destroy the one who came in and, and defiled his temple garden. And he said that on the day that you eat of it, you will die. And then he says this, which says the story's not over. This thing will happen one day and the garden temple defiler will be destroyed. And, and so, and the reason I think this sounds like the second Adam was because that's what Adam was supposed to do, was to do that, right? He was supposed to guard the temple and kill the serpent when he comes in to try to defile God's temple. And Adam didn't do that. He let the serpent defile the temple. And God is saying, there's going to be a, a priest to come along and expel the unclean thing from God's temple garden. Seems like the second Adam. Seems like God is saying it's the promise of the gospel. It's the promise of the good news that one is coming one day. And that's what we call the seed promise. That's what is, flourishes all throughout the scriptures. So again, whatever Adam was supposed to do, he didn't do it. And it seems like God is saying this one's going to come and he's going to do it. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. Any, any questions on that? Yeah. This probably has something to do with it. It was probably not portable. Why does it say the offspring of the snake? Who is the offspring of the snake? And I've always kind of read that as like those who are united to like unbelievers. But it's talking about singular offspring Christ. Who's the singular offspring of the snake? Well, I, I, I looked at the Hebrew there. I saw a little manuscript. And it might not be singular. I don't know. I have to look at that more clearly. It could be yeah, play on the words between the plural. But I'll, I'll say that, yeah, the, most scholars say that the you see that hostility start with Cain and Abel. And it's the divide between the elect and, and the reprobate. But, then it, but the root level divide is between Christ and, and the serpent. Right, and that's why he goes there right after describing that hostility. What else were you going to say? Okay. I, was, I didn't know if there was any branch of theology that had any kind of weird thoughts about the offspring of the snake. I'm sure there are. <laughs> I just, I'm not. I, right now, I'm just trying to yeah, study the good see stuff. A whole book dedicated to just Genesis 3:15. I, I don't know if you know one of the Puritan collection. I just have to think. Like just really digging into the depths of the proto-gospel. I will say that as far as modern scholarship goes, I'd like to see more. And there's there's some stuff happening that I'm aware of. Some people doing some dissertations and things like that. Okay. So, so that, I, that the idea of the people of the Old Testament being able to be saved on the Old Testament by by the promises of the gospel in the Old Testament on its own terms. That the idea of special revelation, the gospel hidden there. So, 
I actually think he's part of that to some degree. Yeah. Like he's got at least people that he's working with to maybe not write something himself, but there are a lot of students right now that are writing a lot of really cool stuff. <clears throat> um, is everybody at Hebrews too? Yes. Okay. Verse five. It was not to angels God subjected the world to come. I'm compelled to believe that there was a world to come for Adam. Of which we are speaking, he says. Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? He made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he has nothing outside of his control. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. What was he quoting there? Hebrews 2. Psalm 8. Oh, man. I have to get through this. It's 1050. I had no idea it was 1050. Long story short, Psalm 8. It's prophesying the world to come. Adam was created a little lower than the angels. But had he obeyed, he'd be elevated above the angels. Christ as the second Adam comes, does what Adam was supposed to do. At present, we don't see that. But one day, the world to come will be ours because he has purchased it. Let me show you why I believe this is important. And I'll just say something. We, we can finish. I just didn't realize it was so late. <clears throat> why do I want to make this distinction? If we misunderstand the law and the gospel as it relates to our callings as Christians, will tend to add to the law by making the specific ways we apply the Great Commission will make them moral. We'll, dis, we'll disregard the freedom that individual Christians have to apply the Great Commission differently. Does that make sense? If, if we don't are careful to make this distinction, we'll cloud up the moral law and breach people's consciences with how they should live the Christian life and, and we'll disregard Christian liberty. That's the law. And as a standard, there's some... As far as the law as a covenant goes, I think it's helpful to just say some things about the gospel. Now, if we don't clarify the law and the gospel, and so mess up our understanding of the Great Commission the Great Commandment. And this is why. Because we'll misunderstand in addition to messing up our understanding of the law, we'll misunderstand what exactly Jesus accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection. What is it that Jesus accomplished? Here's some ways here's some reasons that is very problematic. If we misunderstand what Jesus accomplished. One, it will affect our motives for obeying. Why are you obeying? Is it out of grateful response to what God has done? Or is it to win favor? Or has favor already been purchased for you? So resting on that 
perfect assurance of the ground of Christ's obedience is, is what drives us as we obey the great commandment, great commission. It will also affect our message if we misunderstand this. Because then we'll be declaring good advice as law instead of announcing good news. This is very prevalent. Especially in the social gospel. Because we'll say, this is the gospel that we love and serve our neighbor. No, that's law. That's not gospel. So we have to be careful. But here's the one that jazzes me up. This will affect our approach to our callings because we're, we'll view our roles in this world as more than a grateful response and loving service. We will view the culture around us as something to take over rather than something to humbly serve. Try to usher in a little less Yes. And... I was even having a conversation with a, a Christian friend recently, and they very understandably said, we need to balance out this idea of taking dominion and humbly serving. And I said, I don't think so, because Christ has taken dominion. There is no dominion to take. He is reigning. And that's what I wanted to show you from Hebrews 2. He is reigning. We don't see it, but he is reigning. That's what he said in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. There's no question about it. There is no dominion to take. It's just grateful obedience to God and humble service of our neighbor. Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you. It's finished. I am going to prepare a place for you. Who Technically speaking, in the way that we describe Adam, who's obeying the cultural mandate? Jesus. Because he is the capital C cultivator in the new heavens and new earth, preparing a place for us. You want the culture maker? Jesus is the culture maker. And um, it, it saddens me that there are so many Christians that talk about they're enemies in that way because you read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for them, serve them, turn your cheek, be a good citizen. Not take over the world, guys, and kill some, and kill some people. <laughs> um, I love how Vandrian says this. He says, there's two quotes that really stuck out to me from some things I had read this week. Christ does not restore us to Adam's original task, but he takes us to where Adam was supposed to arrive. That's, I really like how that's worded. That's worth memorizing. But he also says this, because you'll hear a lot of, of this creation regained. The redemption is creation regained. Vendrin says, redemption is not creation regained. It's not getting back to the garden. But, he says, recreation gained. Getting us to beyond the garden, to the eschaton, where we were intended to be forever, to glory. Romans three twenty three, all fallen short of the glory, but we are justified by His grace, and glory will be ours in Christ, because of He, because He perfectly obeyed, shed His precious blood. That's the down payment, and 
I would have loved to go here too. What's the guarantee when we grow in our assurance that the future heavenly citizenship is yours and that the blood of Christ was applied to you? It's the Holy Spirit. It's been poured out on you and it's the foretaste of heaven. It's the foretaste of the new world to come. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're a citizen of the, of the future um, kingdom of heaven. We have a couple minutes. Any questions or thoughts on that? That's that's basically it. I had to say. Do you think Christ's dominion is an already or already not yet? Christ's dominion. I th- As in, like fulfilling the, the creation mandate. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, Adam's job was to expand the kingdom and protect the garden. Do you think that, like, Christ, that the ongoing work of um, spreading the gospel is part of that creation mandate that's accomplished but not yet fulfilled, or is it is the creation mandate completely accomplished and fulfilled? The cultural mandate for the glory, you know, as Habakkuk says, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that, that kind of idea. Uh, I would say already, but not yet. Because the church is not the kingdom of God, it's the outpost of the kingdom. And so until Christ comes back, the dominion will not be complete. The form of this world will come to a close, burned up, dissolved, all kinds of fun things. And then the new world to come will have been gifted to us. And in Hebrews 2, we, at present we do not see all things subjected to him. But we will. You know, Christ purchased the future world to come for us with his blood. But we don't see it yet, but it's coming. If that's the case, then, I mean, all of Adam's descendants would have been included in the cultural mandate, right? Yes, I so think. being yes. in Christ, we also do have a responsibility to fulfill the culture mandate in Christ, right? Um, well, we'll talk about that more as we talk about the two kingdoms. I'll try to answer that question a little bit more. Short answer, no, the cultural mandate technically does not... Ask the question about Adam again. Apply to his descendants. Yeah, so the cultural mandate was given to Adam, but all of his descendants would have been included in that mandate had he had descendants That I don't know. I would have to think about that more because Adam was representative. Exactly, how would that have applied to his posterity? I'd have to think about. But good question for next week. Anything else? Well, thank you guys for your time. Let's go ahead and pray. Our dearest, generous God, we thank you so much for the generosity of publishing the grace of the gospel and developing it and preserving it and giving it to the church. We ask, Lord, that you would apply these truths to our hearts and I I pray that they would change us, that the, the good news of what Christ has done, is doing, and will finally do one day will just make us the salt of the earth, not people who want to take it over, but people who want to be salty in a biblical way they want to be kind and loving and uh, humble servants of their neighbors help us father to be humble servants of our neighbors 
living in this life and our callings in a way that, that honors and uh, glorifies Christ. Bless the rest of our time together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.